Welcome to the Retreat House Podcast, where we gather at the table to hear each other's stories. I'm your host, Angie Smith, and I am so glad that you're here. Please pull up a chair and join us. Welcome to the Retreat House Table. I am very happy to welcome my next guest to the podcast. My next guest is Alice Stock. She is a friend of mine from church, and I actually knew her husband, Bill, before I knew her. He uh, did some of donating, donating his time, actually, to church on the financial end of things. That's how I knew him and then got to know Alice after that. And we did some ministry together with our women's Christmas dinner. And yeah, so I've invited Alice to the show today to to tell your story. So welcome. Thank you. Is there anything else, any other way you'd like to introduce yourself or anything else you'd like to add? Your grandma, mom? Well, yes, I I have two daughters and four granddaughters. Oh. And all girls. All girls. <laughs> and, the, you know, it's great fun being a grandmother. Mm-hmm. It really is. <laughs> and fun to see them develop. The oldest is 15 now and oh, wow. the youngest is nine. So fun to see their personalities develop and mm-hmm. see them develop in school and their academics but also they all are involved in music in some way and that's a big part of my life too Mm -hmm. well I invited Alice to the show to the show today to tell her story about um, your story with grief and you lost Bill in 2011 okay and so why don't we why don't we start back at his original the original diagnosis okay Bill was diagnosed in 2000 with ITP, which is a blood condition of low platelets. And so he uh, was treated for that for three years and didn't seem to really have any effect. Nothing had any effect. So after that time, he went to the U of M to get a second opinion. Well, they determined after some different tests that it wasn't ITP, but they, for lack of a better term, they called it giant platelet sin- syndrome. Hmm. And his, his platelets were extremely large and irregular. And uh, he, the danger was bleeding that wouldn't stop okay. quickly. Um, so, but it, it wasn't, he didn't have a serious bleeding problem ever during that period of time. And, but the doctor did warn us that at some point it might develop into leukemia. Okay. So in 2010, uh, we discovered that it had morphed into a type of leukemia. So he had um, several rounds of chemo at the U of M. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then because of insurance issues, we were directed to Mayo okay. in Rochester for a blood stem cell transplant. Oh, wow. Yeah, I vaguely remember. I just remember him getting a lot of treatment. Yes, yes. I remember prayer requests going out mm-hmm. a lot during that time. Right. So we went to down to Mayo uh, the 1st of November in 2010, and were there almost five months. Wow. So he first had chemo another round of chemo and then finally in january had a stem cell transplant 
okay. from a donor. So in this particular case, they could not use his own cells because they were affected by the disease. Mm -hmm. So they had to use cells from a donor. Okay. And were able to find someone in the international registry mm -hmm. uh, whose um, particulars matched bills in mm -hmm. 10 out of 10. So they thought it was an excellent match. Right. And we never knew who the donor was. Okay. Bill was allowed to write a thank you note to, that mm -hmm. would be given to him. Uh, we think it was a man, <laughs> <laughs> but we have no idea where. Um, and they would, I think that my understanding was they would allow us to communicate if the, if the donation was successful. Okay. So in, he had this uh, in January. And for the first 35 days, uh, they keep really keep close track. Day one, day two, day three. Mm -hmm. um, he did very well for about 35 days. And then uh, developed what they call graft versus host okay. disease. So his Is cells. It like his body? His body was. A, that? Yes. Okay. Uh, the new and the old cells are fighting each other. Okay. And so. Now that can manifest itself in many different ways. He was given a lot of steroids to try to tamp down the response. Okay. But of course that makes him very vulnerable to infection. Okay. And so uh, eventually on, I think it was day 75, he passed away from an infection that was his body just couldn't fight. Oh my goodness. So, and we talked just briefly before we started recording too, and we talked a little bit about the kind of like the living will yeah. issues. Is that something that you had taken care of beforehand? or? Oh, yes. Before? Actually, many years ago, okay. um, you know, I'm, I think part of what started that was, remember the Terry Schiavo case? Yes. Mm -hmm. A woman who was kept on life support for a long time, mm -hmm. um, even though her brain was not, Functioning, functioning and so forth and he felt very very strongly about that situation and felt in his case he would not want to be kept alive artificially mm -hmm. so he made it very clear to me and <laughs> to our kids that just what he his would expect were. yes so um and i'm glad that we did that you know mm -hmm. at a time when it wasn't an issue, right? And I because it's not a pleasant. It's not a pleasant conversation thing to talk to have. about. It's but you know, a lot of people once they're in an illness situation, mm -hmm. then you know the feeling is, well, I have to do everything possible to maintain life. Mm -hmm. And it's a good. I think it's a good idea to discuss it when that's not in your mind. You know. Mm -hmm. so. Well, that's nice that he made it clear to your. To your daughters, too. Um, my dad had gone through a prostate cancer and didn't have a living will. And so we were, you know, we were with him and he would be asked these questions as we went. And he came through it, thankfully. But then we finally, all, I have three sisters, so we four girls sat down with my dad and went through all the, there were two different living will. There were two documents that we went through, but okay. it was a hard conversation but everybody was at the table and everybody heard 
what he had to say, what he wanted, which I thought was a gift. I mean, a gift I hope we never have to open <laughs> and use. But right. so that was a gift that Bill let you all know what his wishes were so right. clearly. But when it came to treatment possibilities, mm-hmm. you know, one of the ways he he described to other people his decision to go ahead and go for the the stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, his suggestion was, um, imagine you're in an airplane in wartime, and your plane gets shot, and your airplane is falling toward the ground. You have two choices, or two options. One is to stay with the airplane, and then you know the result is not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And so his he compared that with not doing a stem cell transplant. But the other option would be to eject from the airplane. Then you know you have at least a chance mm-hmm. of surviving. And that's what he felt with the stem cell transplant, that he, you know, life was worth living and... Fighting for. Fighting for, mm-hmm. yes, and, and having a chance to... Uh, interact with his grandchildren and you know be a productive person which he loved to do and so on and so he decided that he really needed to go ahead with this but at Mayo they put him through a lot of testing including psychological testing Mm -hmm. Um, and they I was included in that too they wanted to know the status of our relationship they wanted to know if we had good support. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after all of the testing, they decided he was a good candidate for it. One of the things that Mayo has is a, the oldest uh, patient they will take for this kind of a procedure is 69. Okay. And he was just about to turn 68. Okay. But they felt, based on the rest of his health, Mm -hmm. um, that he would be a good candidate. And then, so then you said day 75? Day 75, yeah, he passed away on day 75, about three days before. You know, through all of this, he was involved in all the decisions and conversations with doctors and Mm -hmm. all the other folks that would come into his room and but just the last three days, he developed, he just started not feeling well, and they determined that his gallbladder was inflamed, and then they, he was having some heart issues. Wow. And so then they decided they had to take him, uh, put in a drain to help release the pressure mm-hmm. in the abdomen. And he never Recovered. regained consciousness after that. So for the last three days, he was then on dialysis uh, and then was on a ventilator. And so I knew when I saw all of this going on, I knew that I might have to make some hard decisions. Mm -hmm. But I knew exactly what he would want me to do. And as it turned out, God took that out of my hands. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to make the decisions. his blood pressure kept dropping, even though they were giving him the maximum drug they could mm-hmm. to try to keep that up. And so at a certain point, 
when the blood pressure drops, dialysis is no longer effective. Okay. So then they um, turned off the dialysis machine. And then after a certain point, you know, when his respiration and his heart were weakening, then they took him off the ventilator. And then a, shortly after that, he passed away. And you were able to be with him? Yes. Yes. Interesting. The day before he died, one of the nurse practitioners had asked me about my daughters. Mm. Well, I had talked with them and told them told them what was happening, but he asked me if I if he could call them. And what he did, you know, without my knowing what he was saying, he the nurse practitioner. The nurse practitioner. He told them they needed to come. Mm. And I was hesitant to make them, you know, to tell them you need to come now Mm -hmm. because they both had young families and so forth. Mm -hmm. So one of my daughters was able to come on Wednesday, and that was the day before he died. So she came Wednesday afternoon. The other daughter couldn't arrange to come until Thursday. Mm. So one daughter was with me on Wednesday. And in fact, there was a time in the evening when I was so tired, I needed to go back to the hotel, but she stayed and sang some hymns to him mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, talked with him. Right. Um, and then about two in the morning, we got a call and they were telling us his blood pressure was dropping again and that we should come to the hospital. Well, we were in a hotel right next door, so um, we came over, and then he passed away about 7.15. But it was interesting, just a few minutes before that, our son-in-law, husband of our other daughter, Mm -hmm. called because she was going to get on the road, and so he was talking to Karen on the phone just at the time when Bill passed away. So. Jennifer had to drive all the way from Kansas City to Rochester knowing that Dad had already died. Um, but that worked out beautifully because Karen was there with me early, mm-hmm. and then Jennifer stayed with me. Help, well, they both helped me pack up all our stuff, and then she caravaned home with me, okay. and then she helped me with funeral home arrangements. Dis- arrangements and talking with our pastors at church about a funeral and all of that. Um, so that, you know, I, I have told both of them, I'm just so thankful for how God worked all of that because I had Support. at least one of them with me during those tough times. Had you and Bill ever talked about that, about have you ever had you ever had a conversation about funeral arrangements and we did not do anything like planning a funeral mm-hmm. but on the other hand um it really was quite easy mm-hmm. because and I don't know if you knew about the um little book of meditations that Bill had written yes okay for eight for was it for ill people who are in illness yeah okay yeah. yes and so he had, our pastor knew about that, and he'd already thought about using some of that material mm-hmm. in the service. Mm-hmm. And so when I 
mentioned that to the pastor, he kind of smiled and he said, like, he was already thinking about that. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I, I chose, I knew what his favorite passage was, which is Philippians 2, about Jesus gave himself, mm. um, can't think how it goes right now, but actually we had sung uh, an arrangement of that in choir, and so the choir saying that at the service. Because uh, we're both, were the two of you in the choir? Bill was not. Okay, but you were. But I was, yeah. So anyway, that's kind of how how it it worked. It, it was not a difficult. difficult thing to do. Yeah. That's nice. So then, you know, you get past all of the, you know, the shock of losing them and all the arrangements and the funeral and all of the, you know, the big, big things that you walk through when someone passes away. And then you, and then it's kind of done. And, you know, there's a day that you go to the mailbox and there are no longer sympathy cards there. Mm -hmm. So then what did that new life look like for you? I think early on, I was so busy with all the details of um, insurance policies mm. and you the know business of the dying. business stuff mm. and of course one thing I learned very quickly is that every entity whether it's you know the company Bill worked for it or investment company you know mutual funds or mm. whatever um, everybody requires a little something different oh, okay so it's really a chore to get through all of those impediments, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember my dad dealing with that after my mom passed. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, yeah. It, it's frustrating, but on the other hand, it's, it keeps you so busy. You mm-hmm. don't have time to just focus on your loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was March, when he, late March, when he passed away. Um, and then I, in the fall, I started attending a grief share mm-hmm. group, which is a Christian organization that uh, helps people deal with grief. Okay. And I found that very helpful, not only the material, but also getting to know other people who sustained losses mm-hmm. of, of family members and uh, developed a couple of really close relationships because of that which was very, yeah. very helpful. Thinking about things I've learned, mm-hmm. one of the things I realized that through that whole experience, it was really t- about 10 months from the time of diagnosis until Bill passed away. That's so quick. I mean, I know when you're in the midst of it, you don't know when the end will be, but 10 months is quick. Well, on the other hand, you think how many days that is. Oh, true. <laughs> you know, 300 some <laughs> days. And it seems, how can you, how can you cope with something like that that's going to last that long? Well, mm-hmm. as you say, we don't know how long it will last. Right. And what it really does, it, in my experience anyway, it makes you live one day at a time. And then, you know, one of the things we both felt very strongly about was that God can do anything. He can heal. He can uh, support us. He can encourage us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whatever happened, we knew he would walk with us Mm -hmm. through that. 
And, you know, you've, I think we both learned a lot about living for each day. Mm-hmm. One of the things that was so frustrating to Bill was being helpless mm-hmm. and having to depend on other people. And he's, you know, a pretty independent person. Mm-hmm. And he just was sometimes so discouraged about that. And yet, as I look back, the last weekend of his life, it's like he turned a corner Mm. and just decided he could give up his desire to be in control. Mm. And so, you know, his response to all the people who came in and out of his room, uh, including physical therapists, wanting him to get up and walk, and it was so difficult. He was so weak, and it was so difficult. Mm-hmm. But he just had a much better attitude. And I, you know, as I look back now, I think that was just a real gift to both of us. Mm-hmm. Not knowing what, you know, the next few days would bring. Right. Were there, so what and were some of the ways that, I mean, that's obviously some a way that God showed up for you in the midst of that and having your daughters one early and one stay late were there other ways that you saw well yes um one of the things that we appreciated so much was caring bridge Mm. and you know one of the things you you want if you have a support system and we seem to have such a wonderful one at church Mm -hmm was to let people know so they could pray specifically. But with a caring bridge, you could write one email, essentially, Mm -hmm. that goes out to everyone who wants to see it. And you don't have to make 50, 11 phone calls. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, So that was much, much appreciated. And so many people would write to us and let us know that they were praying and so on. We had, you know, the the staff in both hospitals were just wonderful, wonderful people to work with. And, you know, I actually apologized to the nurses one day because Bill was not feeling well and he was crabby. And and they assured me, don't don't worry about it. We understand. (laughs) You know, we do this every day. We also had neighbors who watched our house for us, and this was during the winter. Right. And so, you know, and let us know when we had ice dams building up and mm-hmm. so on. Were there, what were some of the ways after, after he after, passed? One of the things that was really meaningful is one of the early days when Bill was getting his first chemo at Mayo was he was getting antsy, and so they told him he could walk in the hallway with his IV pole mm-hmm. on wheels. Well, there was another guy who was out walking the halls with his, his IV pole. <laughs> and so uh, they got acquainted. Well, then uh, I met Scott and then met his wife, and they were actually staying in the same hotel. Okay. Uh, they were from Alaska. Wow. And... Um, he had a different type of leukemia, but was getting treatment. So we got acquainted, and you know we found out we had quite a bit in common. <laughs> so we could talk about hospital mm-hmm. stuff right. that some was someone who understood. Was someone who really understood. Right. Yes. Uh, well, they left a few weeks after we met, 
Um, and then early in March, he came back for a checkup. Okay. And so he came to visit Ville in the hospital, and he and I went out for lunch and just had a really good visit. Well, then um, in September, and this is now after Bill passed away, mm-hmm. they came back to to Mayo because his cancer had recurred. Okay. And so by that time, of course, I was not in Rochester. I was back here in the Twin Cities. But I went down, I think, four times to visit them. Oh, wow. Um, and he passed away in January. But mm-hmm. I was able to be there with them several times. Mm-hmm. And at one of those visits, I gave them a copy of Bill's little meditation book and said, you know, for if it's helpful, mm-hmm. uh, you're welcome to it. So the next time I visited, they gave it back to me and told me they appreciated the stories, but they had their own type of spirituality. But I asked them, well, would it be okay if I pray for you? And they said, oh, yes, that would be fine. And actually, the last time I visited them, it was getting to the point where they were talking with the staff about hospice. Okay. And they asked me if I would pray for them Mm -hmm. that day. So I did. And, you know, it's interesting. That experience is interesting because it's not that I would hesitate to pray with people, but in this case, not knowing what their spiritual situation was, Mm -hmm. you know, I just felt, I felt emboldened. You Mm -hmm. know, I think God was working there. Mm and gave me words. Um, like those times when you're praying or saying words and thinking, these are not my words. This is the Lord working yes, through me. What, yeah, something like that? That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, for a couple of years after that, I did talk with um, Marianne several times. Mm-hmm. And you know, I haven't heard from her for quite a while now. So I don't know where she is Mm -hmm. but I think for that period of time you know that helped me Mm -hmm. to try to minister to somebody else right and for you for you to be able to do it because you understood in a way that other people wouldn't Mm -hmm. like the the way the way that you talked about that you could all talk about being in the hospital for so long and I mean you could relate to them in a way that some other people wouldn't be able to. That's right. Most people wouldn't be able to. Yeah. Well, and then, you know, I mentioned the the grief share mm-hmm. group. That was very helpful. And then also, um, I had an opportunity in our Sunday school class to talk with people about our experience with, you know, dealing with medical technology and some mm-hmm. of the questions about living wills. But again, I felt like because of what I'd lived through, I could really talk honestly with people about that. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that's been important to me uh, some quotes. Mm -hmm. I'm doing some reading. One of the books that was really helpful is called Reflections of a Grieving Spouse by Norman Wright. And he's not only a counselor, but he lost his wife himself. Mm -hmm. 
And he was actually part of the grief share in the video segment okay. each time we met. But having him talk about his own personal experience mm -hmm. was really helpful. His advice sounds like it's very sound advice because he's lived it. Right. Not just some theory. Right, mm -hmm. right. remember visiting my sister and brother-in-law a year or so after Bill died and talking with a woman in their church who was also a recent widow. And she was asking me, well, how are you doing? And my best explanation was the wound is still there, but it doesn't get torn open quite as often. Mm -hmm. But that's something I learned about grief. I mean, it it's a process and it takes time and everyone deals with it in a slightly different way mm -hmm. so you have to be patient with yourself so things I learned um, God will sustain me mm -hmm. yes I can live alone it may be lonely sometimes but God is there and you know I value friendships uh, one thing I learned from another widow was children may grieve differently. Mm. And she struggled with her sons mm -hmm. who did not grieve the way she expected them to. And then once in a while you just happen upon something you're reading, it just strikes a chord and all of a sudden, you know, the tears just mm -hmm, come mm -hmm. and it catches you unawares. Right. I talked in the, when I talked about my grief story, I said, you know, f for losing my mom, Mother's Day, Christmas, all, you know, the holidays, you're prepared. You're kind of steeled for those. But it would be going into the department store and smelling Chanel Number no. 5, which was her perfume. And, you know, then all the memories come and, oh, no, I'm alone in the mall. <laughs> and now I'm going to start to cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's those things that kind of feel like they're coming out of left mm -hmm. field. I found that to be true, too, that they're unexpected. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and then one of the stories I know I shared with you a while back was one day after Sunday school class, and a friend said something to me about why Bill would have really enjoyed this. And I got weepy, and then he just apologized all over himself. But I told him then and several times later, uh, that's okay. You know, that's part of the grief process. process. But I need to have people talk about Bill mm -hmm. and not just make it feel like he's dropped off. You know, he never existed. existed. Right. When you spoke at the women's Christmas dinner that year, and shared your story of grief. That was the thing that really struck me about saying the person who's gone's name and letting the person who's lost, who's who's grieving, talk about them. So that's been a gift for me to realize to say the name to people mm -hmm. and be okay with whatever that kind of brings up in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've appreciated that. One very thoughtful thing when. Bill's birthday came around the first time. My sister and brother-in-law were here. Mm -hmm. And so they came up with the idea of going out to dinner at a place that he enjoyed. Oh, nice. And, you know, I felt that was really thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Another thing is 
you know, the kids, especially the first couple of years, were very good about remembering our anniversary. Mm. Mm-hmm. And actually, one thing I did the first year, Bill and I had corresponded a lot while I was still in college and he was in the service mm-hmm. for about a year and a half, actually. Oh, wow. And so the first, at the time of our anniversary, I decided to read all the letters. And mm-hmm. a few years before, I had transcribed them all, so I had them all in a book. Oh, okay. And so I reread those. And I've reread them two or three times since then, mm-hmm. too, which is kind of fun to mm-hmm. remember how we got acquainted and, you know, how. Was that before you were married? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Actually, <laughs> several people have been a little shocked when they find out how many days we actually spent together before we were married. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we corresponded for over a year and a half, mm-hmm. but. I counted up one time. I think we were only together about 14 days. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so uh, actually Bill's parents told us, this is probably 30 years later, Okay. <laughs> that they were a little concerned about us because <laughs> we'd been together so little. Um, but they never told us, mm-hmm. you know, until way after <laughs> yes, the fact. Decades later. Yeah. <laughs> but we both felt that it was probably a good thing for us because we were both fairly introverted and mm. figured that we may have discussed things on paper much more easily than we might have in person. person. So anyway, mm. it all worked out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is one I ran into from the British writer G.K. Chesterton. Mm -hmm. There are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded to the mathematician that four is twice as much as two, but two is not twice as much as one. Two is 2,000 times one. Mm. And then this is another Quote from the Book of Common Prayer. Grant, O Lord, to all who are bereaved the spirit of faith and courage that they may have strength to meet the days to come with steadfastness and patience, not sorrowing as those without hope, but in thankful remembrance for your great goodness and in the joyful expectation of eternal life with those they love. And so one of the things that quote has encouraged me to do is to make a mental or written list of all of things I'm thankful for. Mm-hmm. It's almost reframing your whole perspective on things. Yeah, yes. And I think it's just a wonderful reminder of all the qualities in this person that I loved that made him what who he was mm-hmm. and added so much to the quality of our life together. Mm-hmm. Another thing I did, I am kind of a saver of some things, mm-hmm. and I saved a lot of cards, you know, birthday and anniversary cards and mm-hmm. Valentine's and that <laughs> kind of stuff. And Bill always seemed to be able to find cards that just were really meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't write a lot of meaningful things to me. He used the cards primarily. Mm -hmm. But what a joy that's been to go back and read some of those things. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, just treasure. Yeah. I love those yeah. le- that when you were talking about the letters, going back and reading those letters. I mean, almost like it's probably almost like a conversation. Really? Yeah. 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 And I, I interspersed them so they were chronological. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it's kind of fun to read. <laughs> yeah. Well, have there been other things that you've learned or, I mean, acknowledging that everybody grieves differently? Any advice that you would give to somebody who's kind of facing grief or walking with grief? Yeah, there is a uh, book I found in the library that had some really helpful things. The book is called Perfectly Imperfect by Lee Woodruff, and her husband, Bob Woodruff, was a journalist. And oh, he, that was shot. Yes. Okay. Yes, he was ter- a very serious brain injury in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, I think, or Iraq, one or the other. But this was a story telling about this process while he was in the like, hospital. Because there was a lot of rehabilitation. Yes. But she, in the last chapter of the book, she called it What I Know Now. Mm. And so she had some suggestions for people in dealing with others who have ex- experienced a loss. You know, mm-hmm. whether it's, in her case, her husband did recover miraculously. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whether something serious like that or a death would be appropriate. She says, uh, first, don't hang back, but make contact. Mm. And even if you don't know what to say, just say you're sorry and be there for them. Mm -hmm. She says, help them feel normal. And she talked about friends who would come to her house, provide food or something very practical and not ask for information mm-hmm. you know on the mm-hmm. the person in the hospital but just try to help help the family conduct somewhat normal life right. third recognize the power of human touch mm-hmm. and this is appropriate for in her case the spouse but also for the patient you know most people who are struggling with cancer or whatever you know they're not contagious right right (laughs) and um, well I think sometimes there's the fear of hurting them because they look so frail well that could be you know but But it's like holding someone's hand or there's in one case she's talking about someone she visited and she uh, ended up rubbing the person's feet Mm. and that seemed to be very comforting to them Mm mm-hmm Establish a healthy information exchange. And this is where some where CaringBridge comes in. Mm-hmm. So that the family don't have to be spending all their time emailing and emailing calling. And call, and yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then she says, ultimately, the best thing you can do is simply listen to the person you wish to comfort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you may want to ask the person if they're comfortable talking or what they're comfortable talking about Mm. but if they know that you're willing to listen you don't have to say a thing but just listen Mm -hmm. avoid over mothering and one of the things I remember is I really resented was when somebody said you look so tired well how would you expect me to look thank you um (laughs) (laughs) or giving advice you need to do such Mm -hmm. and such Mm -hmm. um you know, don't tell people 
they need to eat or sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't, right. perhaps. Um, and then be sensitive to what they need to hear. Don't be afraid to acknowledge the person's pain. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, don't minimize it. Right. Here's another suggestion. Choose your words and actions wisely. Resist the urge to repeatedly tell the person, you are so strong. Mm. They don't always feel strong. Mm-mm. And they don't want to have to act strong right. in front of you. Which kind of goes back to the listening and being present that making kind of making safe space making safe Mm -hmm. space and a gracious space for that person to grieve the way that they need to grieve and then i thought this was really important one especially for those of us who are believers Mm -hmm. understand where faith belongs Mm -hmm. in the absence of just the right thing to say there are pat phrases that others fall back on that can sound downright irritating Mm -hmm such as, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Yeah. <laughs> Things happen for a reason. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Mm-hmm. There but for the grace of God go all of us. I mean, these are not helpful. No, it's like the top, top, top what was that, five, four or five things to not say to somebody <laughs> <laughs> in that situation. Yeah, you, I'm yeah. sorry, goes a long way. It does. Some people are irritated when people ask them how they're doing. Mm -hmm. I was not. I just, I think I felt the love behind that Mm -hmm. from friends and family. So I always, I was glad to answer that. I know I'm not sure people wanted to hear what I had to (laughs) say. The honest answer. (laughs) But, you know, I tried to make it brief. Mm -hmm. I just felt that was a very caring Mm -hmm. thing to do. And then finally, in her list, be there for the long haul. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, in the first days and weeks of crisis, people come out of the woodwork flooding you with offers to help. And this is wonderful, but it can also be overwhelming. The real work begins when all the neighbors have gone back to their own lives and the patient and family still need occasional support. Mm -hmm. Well, it's like, I I think I mentioned this before, when the sympathy cards stop. And all of a sudden, there's almost this unspoken expectation that you're supposed to just get on with life. And I remember sitting outside of the grocery store, and people were going around, going along like nothing had happened. And I felt like, do you not know? My whole world has changed. You know, my Everything has changed in my life, and you're just going to the grocery store like nothing's happened? I could really resonate with that. Yeah. Actually, I remember feeling that after my first child was born. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the world kept going right. after that. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I have no. I have a whole human being I have to take care of. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. So anyway, so those are really helpful things. Well, thank you so much. I, like I said before, that I've appreciated the way that you've really honestly shared about your process of grief and what I've learned from that about how to talk to other people and to remember the unique experience of being a widow. So I just really have appreciated the way that you've shared and the honesty with which you've shared and for coming on the show and and sharing the story again. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I 
I have felt through this whole experience, if there's something someone else can learn, can benefit from what we experienced, I'm just grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. The making purpose out of the pain mm-hmm. instead of just pain for pain's sake. But if God can mm-hmm. use it to comfort someone else. Yeah, and all of the books and everything that you've talked about, I'll get those all written down and I can put them in the show notes. So then okay. people can go to the website if um, you want to look at any of the resources. So thank you so much, Alice. You know, there's one more thing I'd like mm-hmm. to share here. Sure. This was something I discovered, and I don't remember where I found it, but you can shed tears that he's gone, or you can smile because he lived. You can close your eyes and pray that he'll come back, or you can open your eyes and see all he's left. Your heart can be empty because you can't see him, or you can be full of the love you shared. You can turn your back on tomorrow and live yesterday. Or you can be happy for tomorrow because of yesterday. You can remember him only that he is gone, or you can cherish his memory and let it live on. You can cry and close your mind, be empty and turn your back, or you can do what he'd want. Smile, open your eyes, love, and go on. Thank you for listening to the Retreat House podcast. Any links mentioned in the show can be found in the show notes. We want to thank Isaac Turley for his music at the beginning and end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, and we'll see you next week on the Retreat House podcast. Thank you.